This is Erica Housekeeper of Happy Vermont, a podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. Burlington is Vermont's largest city. It's often referred to as the Queen City, a nickname that Burlington's first mayor apparently came up with during a speech back in 1866. With a population of about 40,000 people, Burlington is home to the University of Vermont, Champlain College, and the University of Vermont Medical Center. For a city this small, it has a lot going on. There's shopping and dining on Church Street, musical performances at the Flynn Theater, an arts district in the city's south end, bike path, city parks, and a scenic waterfront where you can see the best sunsets over Lake Champlain. I first visited Burlington in the 1980s when three of my older siblings were attending UVM. I lived in Burlington for a short time in the 90s after college, and then I became a full-time Burlington resident about 10 years ago. Bob Blanchard grew up in Burlington, right around the corner from where I live in Burlington. And later on, when he was an adult, he lived on my street, just a few doors up the hill from my house. Now retired and living in St. Albans, Bob runs the Burlington Area History Facebook page, which features all sorts of interesting stories about Burlington. On the Facebook page, you'll find vintage photos of Church Street, Battery Park, the waterfront, local grocery stores, and neighborhoods around the city. Not only that, you'll find information that Bob has meticulously researched. In this episode, Bob talks about places around Burlington, including a ravine that ran through the middle of the city, a tower that stood behind a building on College Street, as well as history about the Burlington waterfront. He also highlights what makes Burlington's past and present so dynamic. Last year, in uh, September 2019, you launched the Burlington Area History Facebook page. And I checked this morning, right. you, you have almost 10,000 followers, which is so impressive. I would love to hear, first of all, why you created this page and, and what do you think has led to its great success? Well, a couple of reasons why I created the page. Number one, I'm retired. So... You know, I gave up golf years ago because it was too frustrating. So I was just kind of looking for something to fill the time, especially during the winter. You know, it's a long winter here, as you know. Yeah, so sure um, that that was one motivator. But I've always been interested in history. And, you know, years ago, I did get a book called uh, Picturesque Burlington. And it had a lot of interesting pictures of buildings that are no longer here. And, you know, I kind of put that aside. We raised our kids and so forth. And then after I retired, I started, you know, looking around for uh, a hobby, I guess. And uh, so that kind of opened the door, that book, into looking into Burlington's history. And I, I did look on the Internet. There are a lot of sites out there, but a lot of them have kind of stopped functioning. People no longer post. and But just about all of them really were more like, picture sites with captions. There wasn't a lot of in-depth information about what was being put up. And um, when you Google or do, do any searching with terms like old Burlington photos or vintage Burlington photos and so forth, you tend to see the same shots over and over and over again. The old courthouse, the UVM building, the Yacht Club, the Ticonderoga, the old city hall, several views up Church Street. Um, so. You know, the main thing I was striving for was freshness, originality. If I do put 
buildings that are familiar up. I try to come up with a different angle, a different unfamiliar photo of them, or, or a twist of information about them. I try to sprinkle some humor in there, um, and I try to do a fair number of in-depth, I call them histories. I know this isn't real history, but I do a lot of research, and I really do strive for accuracy. So it's a combination of, I call them in-depth histories, they're in-depth stories, whatever you want to call them. And I do a lot of quickies, you know, just captions, uh, two or three lines about photos. But I, I try to put up stuff that people haven't seen before. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's more of a challenge now because a lot of my primary sources are close to the public now. So, you know, I, I have a pretty good stockpile, but, uh, you know, I, I'm right. confined to the Internet pretty much at this point. Right. And I think that's what I found so interesting when I, I joined your page. I think I, I found you in a – I read a story about you in seven days last – I think it was February and started following you then. And there's so much information on there. Um, and you post very regularly on Facebook and you have these great vintage photos. And Well, I, I, I remember I, I joined a blog years ago. And the guy that wrote this blog, he's in California, and uh, he got an award from Time Magazine for one of the top 25 blogs, new blogs that year. And one of the things he said was, in order to have success, you need to post literally every day. Yeah. Because if you skip a few days, people will stop visiting the page. So, right, right. So, that, so that's kind of key to keeping yeah, it going. Yeah, definitely. And. So you you post re very regularly, which is great. Um, you use these uh, vintage photos and then this accompanying text to provide context. You know, you you have very detailed, very rich information, and your photos are everything from Main Street in Burlington to what the Burlington Airport used to look like to old neighborhood markets, and including one that used to be right next to my house in Burlington. Just right. great things I've never seen before. So. How do you, I know you said a lot of your sources right now, of course, are closed, they're not available, but how do you, aside from the internet, you know, how do you find these old photographs and all the background information to, to share all this incredible historic info? Well, you know, the internet is still a really good source, but it does take a lot of digging. Because like I said, if you just put in basic search terms, you're going to get the same old, same old. Um, so there is a lot there. Uh, it, a lot of the big colleges have tremendous archives and you'll find Vermont photos at Stanford University's archive, for, for example. You never know. Um, so that's why it takes a lot of digging. There's a lot of, uh, you're drilling a lot of dry holes, you know, to find two or three good shots. Uh, but I also find a lot of information in newspapers.com. Uh, that's a subscription website and it has Newspapers from all over the country digitized, and we're lucky because the Burlington Free Press, every issue from day one until today is, is digitized. So for about 100 years, I'd say from about 1880 to about 1980, literally everything that happened in Burlington was in the paper. <laughs> wow. When a grocery clerk changed jobs, that would be in the paper. I don't know how they got all this, but it, it, the the, the uh, chronicling of that century of life in Burlington is amazing. And um, so that is by far my biggest source of background information. You also can get pictures from that site, but 
a lot of the press photos are terrible quality. They're so dark, you can't really even make out what it is half the time. Right. Um, that, you know, the, the more recent papers have better, better quality, but uh, a lot of the older papers have the older photos. So, you know, uh, and again, you really have to hunt. Uh, that I did one yesterday on a home at 18 Ward Street that used to be a market, and, and I did find an old market photo in the free press. Oh. It wasn't great, but better than nothing, right? It's really, really hard to find old photos of markets, incredibly hard. So newspapers.com, definitely number one, but magazines have archives, there's photograph websites, there's the special collections at UVM is, is the number one site for images, but they're, they've been closed since COVID. So who knows when they're gonna reopen. The, the Vermont Historical Society is good. Uh, they are open again, but they serve the whole state, so Burlington is just a subset, you know. Right, and uh, right. exactly. UVM tends to really be really be Burlington heavy. So, right. so there's there's a lot out there. There's there's I don't know if you're familiar with James Dettori. I've written about him before, but he photographed Burlington from the late 30s to early 60s, and there's like 30 or 40 thousand of his images at UVM, but they're all negatives. None have been archived, oh, wow. and none none, of, none have been digitized. I have some. I got about 30, but you got to look at negatives and then yeah. you got to figure out is this, then you got to pay five bucks for each one to get a scan, which I'm glad to do, but you know, you're kind of, it's hard when you're looking at a negative. You're rolling you know, the dice. Yeah. Rolling the dice a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and it's very labor intensive to, they're all in the, they're all in the closed stack. So you've got to give them, you know, a list of topics and then they go see if there's folders for those topics. So it's very, very labor intensive, but if those ever get digitized, that would be an incredible resource. Definitely. So. Let's talk a little bit about Burlington's history. One thing I've I've always found the transformation of the waterfront to be really interesting um, for folks who don't know. In the mid 1800s, Burlington was the third largest lumber port in the country, and then the lumber industry began to decline in the early 1900s. And then the waterfront evolved into a bulk petroleum facility. Of course, the waterfront then eventually fell into disrepair. But then eventually good things happened. The waterfront became focused on public use. The bike path was developed. The community boathouse was built. And the waterfront, waterfront park really became this gathering space for picnics and yoga classes and concerts and events. But I never knew this interesting fact about the waterfront. You posted on Facebook that in Burlington's earliest days, the waterfront had very little flat land when the city was first settled. And the right, land right. along the lake sloped upward. So as the waterfront became more focused on commerce and industry, and they needed to accommodate rail lines and lumber storage and factories, they had to accommodate that. So my question for you is, what did the waterfront look like back in those early days? And then what was it like when you were growing up in Burlington, you know, in the 50s and 60s? Well, I mean, if you go back to the early days before me, is that what you're asking with your first question? Yeah, way back. You know, when you, it's like paint a picture for us. What, I mean, you shared some photos and I know you weren't there you know, back at the very right, beginning, yeah. but, yeah, you know, was it like a big hill that just sort of went up from the lake? I'm, I'm just trying to imagine this. Yeah, well, basically, you know, you look, down from Battery Park and um, the land right at the bottom of Battery Park's slope uh, was mostly water at the early stage of Burlington's development. 
and pretty much the same all the way along. And if you if you take the ferry over to Port Kent, you're, you'll see the same thing over there. It's it's very similar. Uh, there's uh, a dock, a railroad track, and then hills go, that go up way higher than than Burlington. So so there wasn't much available land there. And very early on, after the railroad came in, it was the railroad really that created all that land. I think it was a total of 23 acres. And I've seen various claims, I guess I'd call them, about sawdust being used to fill, to create the the land, because there was a tremendous amount of sawdust being generated daily in those planing and cutting mills. And, uh, but I don't think that's accurate. What what happened, I actually found an article that described the process. It was a guy named Lindsley who was an engineer and uh, they actually pumped uh, sludge, I guess you'd call it. It was just mud, sandy mud from the bottom of Lake Champlain. And I shouldn't say sludge because that's like sewage, but the, the sandy mud, they blasted it against the slope, like right under Battery Park and the water drained back into the lake and the sand remained and then they just flattened it out. So that's how that all that land was formed. Um, and that created a big legal dispute many years later when uh, all the petroleum storage tanks were taken out and Burlington wanted to create parks down there and the railroad was claiming that they owned that land because they created it. And, uh, and it went to court and Burlington prevailed and you know, you've described yeah. What resulted? Yeah. So as far as when I grew up, I, mean, I I grew up in the South End, so I could easily walk or take a bike down to the waterfront. And, and it was rough. I mean, you know, there there were no real amenities uh, to speak of. And there were still old factories. I mean, a lot of the old factories are gone by that point, but there were still some rough buildings. There were, there were there's a lot more train activity. Um, Perkins Pier was, was there. There were a few benches and picnic tables, uh, and you could fish there. There was the ferry dock, of course. The Naval Reserve was there. And the water department was, I guess you'd call it the only real uh, attempt at public access because they, they actually set up a picnic pavilion. This was in the 50s. And they had a fishing pier. It was it didn't stick out in the lake like the one now does, um, but it was very popular. You could, you know, it was deep water right off the pier, so very very popular fishing spot. They actually had a, a tank where you could put your you could release your catch and release your fish into the tank, and people could watch the fish swimming around. So it's like an early version of an aquarium. Um, so that was that was a very popular spot, and you know we used to go there to fish a lot. Um, but like I said, you could fish off Perkins Pier, but that way you're just sitting on the rocks and there really wasn't a lot there. Um, I remember wandering around the railroad yards and you'd see barrels full of railroad spikes just kind of laying by the side of the tracks and, you know, stuff like that. Um, of course, the sewer plant was still there. and That was not as well managed in terms of, you know, aromas, shall we say, as it is now. Um, so, So it wasn't a great place that you'd want to go have a picnic or you know things Mm -hmm. like that but but for kids it was there was a big draw because back in those days fishing was a big deal and you know the i've posted pictures of ice shanties during the winter back when we had we had ice on the waterfront fishing was a very very popular pastime in the lives of burlingtonians back then so so that's kind of a quick uh, description yeah 
That's great. And then also I've found on your Facebook page interesting facts about Burlington long ago. Um, Back in the late 1800s and early 20th century, you've pointed out that Burlington was experiencing this kind of mini gilded age. And the main source yeah. of wealth back then was was lumber. So you had folks like Lawrence Barnes and the Wells family, H.O. Wheeler, John J. Flynn, and other wealthy men who built these grand homes in Burlington's hill section during that period. And these men, you know, today they're, you can see their names on schools or streets or, you know, the Flynn Theater downtown. Was there a particular architectural style that was used for these grand homes and then also most of these homes i i imagine are still standing today and who owns them yeah i I must confess i'm not an expert when it comes to architecture but i'll I'll just say that most of the homes we're talking the willard street area you know up on the hill the side streets maple and main street you know, that, that quadrant of Burlington, that was where the really wealthy people built these, I call them grand homes. I mean, they were true mansions. Probably the nicest one, in my opinion, is uh, the what's now the UVM Alumni House and was for many years the Delta Psi fraternity. That was the home of Ed, Edward Wells. That was Wells Richardson, the patent medicine, uh, the Wells family, you know, they most people did make their money in lumber, but there were other fortunes, and that was one of them. Wells Richardson Medicinal Concoction Company, and the the amount of money those people were making is kind of hard to comprehend. Um, but all four of the brothers built mansions in Burlington. They're all standing except for one, which burned, and they tended to be mostly the Queen Anne. Victorian or shingle style. Those were, I think, the three main architectural styles that you see among the grand homes of Burlington. When it comes to public buildings, you saw a lot of French Second Empire buildings with the mansard roof. And and there's some Romanesque, you know, the Billings Library, the Redstone Buildings, uh, Lawrence Barnes School, which is gone, the old one, I would kind of put that in the Romanesque category. So it, it was a, you saw a little bit of everything really in downtown, but I would say Victoria and Queen Anne and Shingo were the three main, as far as the, the mansions of the, uh, the people up on the hill. Right. And are, do you know, are most of these still private residences or I imagine maybe oh, UVM, sorry, yeah. oh, that's okay. Or UVM or Champlain yeah. owns some of them or. Well, I, I, you know, most of the ones, the, the really spectacular ones are all kind of clustered together and Champlain has purchased a lot of them and they have some people kind of right because they've taken out the grand staircases inside but but to me you know when you look when you drive down the street it still looks the same as it did a hundred years ago and that's huge because not only did they buy them they're keeping them up really really well and UVM same thing Uh, you know some of the old historic houses are fraternities some were dorms, but UVM owns a lot of the old buildings like Grassmount, places like that. And so they have, which which was a former resident, they've really kept them up too. But the problem is it's so expensive to restore a huge historic building. 
when they did over Delta Psi into the alumni house, they did build a, a, a new addition, but that was 11.2 million. And the Billings renovation, which is still going on, is 11.4 million. So we're talking a lot of money for one building. And most individuals just don't have that kind of money. And I hate to think what the property taxes would be on buildings like this. So right. some of the, I would say the lesser buildings that were really nice big Victorians, for example, on places like Brooks Avenue, uh, you know, you, you get a little away from from the Champlain College campus and there's still lots and lots of nice big buildings. They're just not mansions, but a lot of those have been chopped up into apartments for right. a UBM students. So right. that is, you're not going to get the TLC in that situation that you're going to get from Champlain or UBM. So, but I would say on balance, Burlington is pretty lucky because there have been a lot of losses of great buildings, yes, but I think by and large, the, the vast majority are still here and in pretty good shape. And uh, you look at other towns and what has happened. I mean, historic buildings being torn down, is it, it was epidemic across the whole country. So Burlington certainly wasn't you know unique in that regard. Right. Right. And and speaking of that, back in the 60s and 70s and probably the 50s too, right, people thought nothing of tearing down historic buildings to put up you know, a parking lot or build a gas station. And in Burlington, you know, historic structures are well protected, which is a a good thing. I find that um, I live in a house that's um, historically significant, which I appreciate, you know, I can't do anything to it, but I, I love it and take good care of it. I am, but, you know, the city I find can get into a bind with old structures, like you have the Moran plant down on the waterfront which is this coal plant that was decommissioned back in 1986. And then you've got Memorial Auditorium, which was built, I think, in the 20s. And that's been empty since 2016 because it was deemed structurally unsound. And it sounded, from what I read, like before the pandemic hit, there were maybe things in motion by the city to address the future of these buildings. And then I read, I think it was in last week's paper, um, the old Midtown Motel on Main Street in Burlington. I think the owner wanted to tear that down and put up a parking lot in the cities, you know, put the, put the brakes on that. So my question Mm -hmm. for you is, does it seem like Burlington is more focused on historic preservation than other cities? I mean, has it, has it learned from its mistakes that it made 50 or 60 years ago? And what's your take on this? Well, I would, you know, I don't have a lot of knowledge about the policies of other cities, but as far as has it learned from its mistakes of 50 or 60 years ago? Certainly the answer to that is yes. Maybe the pendulum has even swung too far in the other direction because somebody once joked that half the city is historic. I know the five sisters where you live and I formerly had a home in the five sisters, same street as you just further up. Right. I think all but like four houses in the five sisters are considered historic. Right. Speaking for myself, the house I lived in was certainly nothing special. <laughs> it, it had been, I guess the word is wrecked by, you know, taking porches off and putting up vinyl siding. And, you know, a lot of owners had just destroyed any historical integrity that the house had. 
but nonetheless, uh, there it is, a historic home. And so you're kind of handcuffed. If you're the owner, you got to kind of jump through a lot of hoops to do anything, which, you know, I understand the intent, but it almost seems maybe they've swung too far the other way. And, you, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned the Moran plant. I'll throw in a couple of other examples. The Pease Grain silo, which was on the waterfront for years, it's kind of a derelict uh, metal structure. A lot of people fought to preserve that as a, you know, a, a artifact of the Burlington waterfront's his, industrial history, even though it really wasn't all that old. It didn't go back to the days of the, you know, the lumber plane mills and so forth. And even like the Vermont Federal Bank, uh, which was built on the site of the old Cathedral Grammar School, which was a great building, uh, the Vermont Federal Bank. It's not, I don't even know what bank it is now. They come and go so fast now I can't keep track. What but, street is that on? You know where the farmhouse is on Bank yeah. Street? Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Okay. That is, to me, just a basic glass box, and that was deemed historic as a, some type of, I can't remember what they called it, but some type of architectural style. So it, it's almost like this is a little bit maybe overreaction, um, but that's kind of what happens when horrible things happen. People do tend to overreact. and. You know, I know, I know the intentions are good, but yeah, uh, you, you're to me, you're preserving a few things like the Moran plant that I don't know if it really is worth keeping, but you know, it's just a basic brick box with right. not even that long a history. <laughs> you know, right. like you said, it only, only goes back to the fifties. So, but anyway, yeah, um, they're uh, as far as what they're going to do with it, uh, they've been talking about it for, I don't know, seems like 20 years now. So. <laughs> Long time, definitely. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, my gosh. Um, in your research that you've been doing um, about Burlington, are there facts you've discovered that have just completely surprised you? I mean, you grew up here. You know a lot about the city. But was there something that just sort of knocked your socks off? Well, you know, something I've already mentioned, the way the waterfront land was created by the railroad that surprised me uh, because i had heard all these stories about sawdust and garbage and being used to fill uh to make that land and that just was not the case and like i said it was this mud or something yeah yeah, yeah. so um one thing that really surprised me was and i did a post about this this with a picture in the late 30s and early 40s, I'd say a total of no more than five years, there was a 250-foot radio tower sticking up right out of the middle of downtown Burlington. Really? That surprised, that surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> the, ima the image of that, ha have you seen that post? I don't know if I have. When did you post that? Oh, it was months ago. But the image is amazing. Uh, it's one of the most, might be the most dramatic picture of Burlington I've ever put on the, on the page. And the 250 feet is, that's a tall tower. And it also had four smaller towers around it. So, and this was uh, right, I think it was right off of uh, college between uh, Church and Wooski Avenue. I think it was right behind one of those buildings. So anyway, that, that, that was stunning. Yeah. I, get, I guess the other thing I'd just mention is I was surprised in looking at prominent people, you know, in Burlington's history, uh, doing research for posts and whatnot, 
how many of the movers and shakers in Burlington's business history came from little towns. You know, I, I think probably back in the old days, if you grew up on a farm, which if you were in a small town, it's almost certain that you were on a farm. Uh, how many of these people, I think, saw Burlington as kind of like the Emerald City? They just, like John J. Flynn is a good example. He was from Dorset. And he ended up in Burlington when he was an adolescent and delivering milk for a farmer who had a farm up by where Patrick Jim is. And within a few years, he was running the farm. And um, Frank Abernathy of uh, Abernathy's department store, he came from New Haven. Tony Parmelo was from Newport. The Wells family was from Waterbury. Lawrence Barnes was from Hillsborough, New Hampshire. On and on it goes, you know. So um, a lot of these people who really made a mark on Burlington weren't from Burlington. You hear a lot about the Loomis family and, you know, some of these other names that go way, way back. And certainly their, their accomplishments were noteworthy too. But I would say most of the people that you really think about when you think about Burlington's, especially the business history, they came from elsewhere. You mentioned, I want to go back to that tower for a second. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing I read, and I, I don't know if this was on your page or not, but that not too far from maybe where that tower stood, there used to be this ravine that went through downtown Burlington. Someone described it as yes. like kind of going right through like where Esox is on Main Street. Do you know yeah. what that's all about? Well, it was a natural formation, a gully. Probably there was a, a creek or a river there way, way back before recorded history. And it stretched all the way from up around Pearl Street, pretty much down. It kind of wound its way in a serpentine fashion through downtown and came out right around. It ended right around Shelburne Road. And over the years, it gradually got filled in. And according to things I've seen, a lot of what was put into the ravine to fill it was sawdust. But just to backtrack a bit, initially, the city ran the sewer line through there, through the ravine, um, you know, because everybody, gravity being what it is, everybody was above the ravine, so their sewage all went down into the pipe in the ravine and out into the lake it went. It was untreated. There was no sewage treatment plant back in those days. But but there was a sewer line and it was in the ravine. So that was the first use of it by the early settlers. And then later the railroad actually ran through the ravine. There's pictures of, there were four bridges over streets like college, for example, had a, a bridge over the ravine so that the railroad could, you know, so that there, there wasn't a grade crossing so that the railroad didn't have to worry about traffic. It passed under the road, under College Street, and instead of on the same grade. And there were four of those because the ravine, like I said, kind of snaked its way through Burlington, and four different streets had uh, overpasses over the ravine railroad tracks. And over time, garbage and sawdust and who knows what else went in, and it was filled in, and that was back in the horse and buggy days. So this was all done by hand and horse. Wagon loads of sawdust were brought up from the waterfront, and people would just, just dump their garbage in. And what happened was it created very, very unstable ground. And that had consequences later on. There's a post about this as well. Uh, when the Masons were looking to build their building, 
they wanted to build it where Fletcher Free Library is, but that is filled land from the ravine. And their their engineer said, the building you're talking about, you're familiar with the Masonic Temple. It's huge, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. And huge, huge brick building, which obviously weighs a lot. And the, their engineer said, there's no way this ground can support your building. So they ended up building it at the top of church. But Fletcher Free Library was built there, much smaller building, but the land couldn't support that either. And so it started sinking, sinking. And the library was actually closed for several years, and the books were put, I think, in the basement of Memorial Auditorium. That was a temporary library, and they were actually talking about tearing Fletcher Free Library down. And um, the, but they finally did come up with the funds to stabilize it. And this was later when historic preservation was more on people's minds, and obviously that's an irreplaceable building. So, so it was safe. But that was that's an example of. Um, you know, the impact of impact of the ravine. And really, if you want to see the remnants of the ravine, go down to the old hood plant and uh, the back of the hood plant. That's really the only vestige, clear vestige of the old ravine. It remains unfilled. The strong theater, which burned in the early 70s, was actually built down into the ravine. Um, and then it was replaced by Courthouse Square. And I, you know, that so that that lot, that corner there was probably the deepest part of the ravine. It went down like 35 feet there, I believe. And there's actually there's actually an old photo, and it's on the page of uh, the College Street Congregational Church with the ravine um, in the foreground. And there's actually a pond in the picture. There was a pond there for many years. It's on several maps to the pond, and that was that was the ravine. It was just collected water and formed a pond. So. So it was a very, very prominent feature of Burlington for many, many years, but now it's almost all been filled in and built over. Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's something. And the hood plant, um, what street is that on, the old hood plant? Uh, King and Lewis Avenue, yeah. Um, so last question for you. What do you think makes Burlington's history so special? Well, I think I said this when I did the interview with Seven Days. Uh, I would use the phrase that Burlington has punched above its weight for most of its history for the size of the city. And really back in the the mini Gilded Age, as I called it, it was about 15,000 people that lived in Burlington. It was really not, not a very big place. So the amount of wealth that was generated and the amount of great buildings that resulted and the infrastructure, the trolley system and everything else that built up because of the wealth that was generated was really, I think, kind of out of proportion to a city the size of Burlington. And, um, you know, like, like we said before, Burlington has torn down a lot of really great buildings, but there are still a lot that remain, like the old railroad depot. Um, they did tear down the, the previous one, don't get me wrong, uh, but the, the one from 1916 at the foot of uh, Main Street is still there. The old post office is still there. Um, Montpelier, for example, tore down both both of its both its old railroad railroad station and its old post office. So the presence of a lot of these reminders of what Burlington used to be architecturally are still around. And so you know it's. Um, it, it, it's kind of making a mark lately because of politics, you know, Bernie Sanders, of course, you know, so, but, but 
but even before that, Howard Dean. So it it's punching above its weight again, but in a different way. But certainly that's history, and you know that's certainly something that draws attention to the city. So I think you know from from the start, it's just it, it's got this magnificent location. It's one of the most beautiful views you'll ever see in your life, and it, it all kind of stemmed from there. I think uh, you know people used to summer here. Very wealthy people would come up from the cities to get away from the heat, and they would come up to Burlington. They would come up to Mount Mansfield, Stowe. Well, that was one thing that surprised me, that Stowe was a really popular destination way before skiing. Did not know that. Um, but anyway, um, back to Burlington. It, it just, you know, these hotels that sprang up, most of which are gone, because fire was such a terrible, terrible problem back in those days, you know, before efficient heating. Um, there was just all these fireplaces and coal furnaces and all the big fires in Burlington, virtually all of them were in the winter. So there were a lot of losses just from fires, uh, to say nothing of, you know, just tearing them down to build parking lots. That, 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 that's the worst, but a lot of them were just lost through accidents. So, you know, a lot of the old hotels and the infrastructure just rang up because people wanted to be in Burlington in, in the summer and, and the steamboat history, of course. So there's, just, there's just a lot of elements that you put them all together and, it's just a really, really rich historic package. Yeah, it definitely is. And you can take it for granted if you live here. And But it's interesting to kind of put that in perspective. And when and when you think of the size of Burlington, that it's, what, 40,000 residents now? Um, that that's, right. Yeah, that is pretty remarkable. Yeah, we're lucky to have UVM and, of course, the hospital. Those have kind of insulated Burlington over time from really hitting rock bottom rock bottom during recessions and so forth. So Burlington's been pretty fortunate, um, you know, over the years to have the assets that it that it has and uh, kind of continues to this day. A lot of people see it as a place they want to live. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Bob as much as I did. You can learn more by visiting the Burlington Area History page on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Send me comments, story ideas, or feedback at hello at happyvermont.com. You can also learn more by visiting my website at happyvermont.com. Take care and talk to you soon.